It was a hot day during the dry season, and water was scarce. A lion and a wild boar came out of the brush at the same time, on opposite sides of a small waterhole. Both of them were very thirsty. They immediately began to argue about who had the exclusive right to the water, and before long they began to fight physically. As things were starting to escalate, they both happened to glance up and realize that a flock of vultures was just above them in the trees, watching them battle with eager anticipation. The lion and the boar then looked at each other and simultaneously realized that no matter how their fight turned out, the only real winners would be those vultures. So they set aside their differences, stopped fighting, and figured out how to share the water having both realized that it was a better option than killing each other and feeding those vultures. Aesop's Fable of the Lion, the Boar, and the Vultures everybody, CJ here, your cowboy in the jungle, rolling with the punches, playing all my hunches, plowing straight ahead, come what may. This is Dangerous History Podcast, episode 205. Divide and conquer, divide and rule. And I set aside a bunch of other things I was working on over the past week or so to put this episode together because I felt I just really had to get it out there. Part of the inspiration, as should be obvious if it isn't already, it will be soon, is current events. But another part of what put this in my mind was that I recently recorded a segment that's going to be on an upcoming episode of Daniele Bellelli's History on Fire podcast coming out in September. He asked me and several other history podcasters to each put together sort of a partial episode. I think all of ours came out to around a half hour or a little bit over. Having to do with the idea of ripples in history, that sometimes things that may not seem like that big of a deal at the time will have big downstream effects on the course of future events. And the thing that I did my segment on was Bacon's Rebellion. And how this rebellion and what followed in colonial Virginia had a massive effect on the way the Virginia elite and later the overall American elite plays off different factions of the non-elites against each other in a divide-and-rule strategy to keep themselves at the top of the pyramid. Now, I had selected that story months ago, long before the death of George Floyd and all of the protests and riots and all the controversy. But as I was actually recording that segment about a week ago, I was realizing that I had 
without knowing it, chosen something that had become super relevant. And so I decided to put together this episode that I'm recording now, because I knew the Bacon's Rebellion segment wouldn't be published as a History on Fire episode for several more months. And so in this episode, I'm going to talk about the strategies of divide and conquer and divide and rule, and the way that different elites will use them in order to benefit themselves and keep themselves in power over others that they're dividing and ruling. And I'm going to talk about several different historical examples of this happening. Skillful conquerors and rulers will leverage the Manichaean temptation to their benefit. They'll do it internally within their own jurisdiction, pitting groups inside their jurisdiction against each other. They'll do it externally by diverting the attention of the ruled inside of their own jurisdiction against foreign threats outside real or imagined. Or they'll do both. Now, it's divide and conquer if the rulers are using it to take over a new place that they didn't have control of before, and it's divide and rule when they're using it in a place that they already had control of that they're trying to maintain and deepen their control of and their exploitation of. Divide and conquer and divide and rule are some of the oldest tricks in the book, and they still work very effectively, which is why it really never goes out of style amongst those who seek to either conquer or rule. Supposedly, the earliest historical figure to actually coin the term divide and rule was Philip II of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father, who began building the empire that his son would inherit and then make bigger still. But in fact, those who build empires and those who run and exploit them and hold them together have been doing versions of this tactic for as long as we have historical sources. And presumably, some of the savvier Stone Age chieftains of some of the larger caveman tribes probably were already figuring this out and doing it in the prehistorical era. And needless to say, elites around the world continue to do versions of this to this very day. Just look at the ways in which the politicians and corporate establishment media choose which stories to put a spotlight on and which to ignore. And of those stories that they do decide to spotlight, the ways that they specifically shape the narratives of these stories. In other words, do they tend to shape these narratives in ways that are likely to unify lots of non-elite people together? Or do they pretty much always somehow manage to craft the narrative in a way that maximizes division and polarization among the non-elites? and thereby give the elites all kinds of opportunities to leverage those divisions in order to hang on to or even increase their own control and exploitation of the non-elites. I think anyone with a shred of intelligence and honesty who looks at recent events and the narrative that's been pushed regarding them knows the answer to this. So in this episode, I'm going to cover a sketch, an overview, of some instances from history, from ancient to modern. Some of these instances I'll get into in more detail than others, but all of these that I'm going to mention, I think, provide food for thought that will hopefully help you to see more clearly how divide and conquer and divide and rule are being leveraged hard right now, and how the vast majority of the non-elite population regardless of where they're coming from as far as all of the different divisions that are being encouraged, with race, 
gender, and political party being the preferred ones of the moment for various reasons. That the vast majority of non-elite people, no matter what side they're on in any of these divides, are, to a large extent, simply pawns in the game. Marionettes happily dancing to someone else's tune, wholeheartedly believing that they are in fact free. So we'll mention a few instances of divide and conquer, of course we could find countless ones throughout history. And then we'll also mention some specific examples of divide and rule. So the first instance of divide and conquer I want to mention a little bit is Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul for the Roman Empire. Lots of people know at least the basics of this story. In the first century BC, Julius Caesar exploited some pretexts and justifications that might as well have come out of Team America's playbook in the early 21st century for starting wars. And he took a Roman army up north of the Alps and in less than a decade, conquered the vast territory then known as Gaul, which was basically modern-day France and Belgium, for the Roman Empire. Now, in terms of geography and population, this was quite a big area to conquer. The various Celtic peoples that lived in the area were simply unable to unify to present a common front against the Romans in this conflict until it was basically too late. If they had done so early on, they'd have been able to put together an army that would have outnumbered Caesar's men significantly. But instead, Caesar, being not just a brilliant military strategist, but also a master politician, was able to leverage divisions and rivalries between the different Celtic tribes in order to make alliances with some of them against others, and then once those were defeated, he'd eventually turn on the ones he had just been allies with. It was divide and conquer, which military tacticians will sometimes refer to when it's done on a small scale, as defeat in detail. A smaller force defeating a larger one by focusing on one piece at a time of the larger force. Now, to be sure, the divide and conquer strategy isn't the only reason that the Romans beat the Celts in Gaul. For sure, their superior logistics and engineering skills plus the superiority of their soldiers in terms of unit cohesion and group tactics, also played important roles. But even so, had the Celts teamed up together from the beginning to resist the Romans consistently and uniformly, I don't know if Caesar would have ultimately succeeded the way he did. By the way, Dan Carlin did a six-hour Hardcore History episode on this story back in 2017 that I'm currently in the middle of listening to for the second time, so check that out if you haven't already listened to it. There's no way I can top his six-hour version of this story here, so I'll just refer you to there if you want more detail on this story. Caesar wasn't the first, nor would he be the last, to use strategies like divide and conquer and divide and rule. Divide and conquer was also a pretty much constant move by European colonists in the New World against the various native peoples. They would play on pre-existing rivalries and make alliances with some natives in order to get them to help fight against others. Then eventually, sooner or later, once the initial native enemies were defeated, the white tribes would turn against the natives who had just been their allies. This happened from the earliest Spanish conquests in the New World all the way up through to the final stages of the Plains Indian Wars in the late 19th century American West. Perhaps most notoriously there, many Crow Indians 
assisted the Americans when they went to war against the Lakota. But for the moment, I'm just going to briefly mention one of the earliest and certainly one of the most dramatic and lopsided instances of this taking place in the New World. And that is Hernando Cortez's conquest of central Mexico that unfolded from 1519 to 1521. I'm not going to tell the story of that conquest in detail here either. It's been covered elsewhere in tons of detail. In fact, Daniele Bolelli had a multi-part series on History on Fire covering it, and if memory serves, I think it was four parts and it adds up to something like eight or ten hours altogether. But I just want to mention here how Divide and Conquer played a role in this seemingly so unlikely event of a relatively small group of Spaniards defeating the gigantic Aztec Empire. It was unlikely in many ways just because of the sheer numbers. And yes, there were differences in technology that mattered. And yes, as many people know, diseases played a huge role for sure in enabling the Spanish victory. But even with those things in mind, at the end of the day, you're still left trying to wrap your head around how, even with those advantages, Cortes was able to conquer this vast empire with a force of Spaniards that most of the time numbered only in the hundreds, and I don't think at its peak ever numbered much more than one or perhaps two thousand during the conquest. While the Aztecs had literally hundreds of thousands of warriors. I mean, really, how well is a blunderbuss-equipped conquistador going to do against an enemy that outnumbers him several hundred to one? How fast can you reload that blunderbuss? Now, for sure, the single most important factor in the conquest was epidemic disease. That definitely killed more natives than anything else, and it weakened the society's cohesiveness across the board. And yes, the Spaniards had advantages both physically and psychologically from things like guns and steel weapons and armor and horses. But a factor that people who've not studied this conquest often overlook is the Spaniards' use of divide and conquer. Cortes and his men realized very quickly, once they got involved in central Mexico, that the Aztecs had brutally conquered and exploited other peoples in the building of their empire, and that these other groups, could very easily be turned against their Aztec overlords. And so these other groups of natives ended up not only fighting on the side of the Spaniards against the Aztecs, but at least equally important, these other groups, some of whom were already under the Aztecs when the Spaniards showed up, and others of whom were kind of local rivals that hated and feared them. But these different groups provided absolutely crucial logistical support for the conquistadors by acting as porters to help them move all their supplies through the difficult terrain of the region. The point is that even with the devastating epidemics and the advantages in weapons technology, there's a good chance that Cortes still might not have been able to pull off what he did with such a small number of Spaniards if he hadn't been savvy enough to also pull a divide and conquer in order to nullify the Aztec advantage in numbers and logistics. So, divide and conquer is always one of the big tools in an empire builder's toolbox. But it's also a top-shelf tool in the toolbox of anyone who is seeking to administrate and hold together some sort of empire that's already been built. And that's when it's divide and rule. 
it's less aggressive than divide and conquer, but it's still based on the same principles. It's just you're trying to use it mostly to keep the status quo favorable to you and the rest of the ruling class, rather than, as in the case of a conquest, using the principles to overturn the status quo and create a new one. Another way in which divide and rule was used historically was to control slave populations on plantations. Slave owners, of course, would tend to encourage slaves to rat out their fellow slaves for planning to run away or rebel or anything like that, and those who were the rats would be well rewarded. Also, on larger plantations, slaves would sometimes serve as overseers of other slaves, and of course, for this, they would get various perks and privileges for doing so. The split between house slaves and field slaves is particularly interesting. The field slave is jealous of the house slave's privileges and relatively more comfortable day-to-day life, but also contemptuous of his softness and suspicious of his closeness with the master and his family, and probably thinks of him in some sort of terms like a race traitor or something like that. The house slave tends to simultaneously look down on the field slave as being crude and simple, but also might have some sort of feeling of guilt or inferiority for being a traitor. The house slave, as well as the slave who's serving as an overseer or any kind of special privileged position, is a slave that is to some degree being co-opted. And there have been some very interesting psychological studies, not of slaves, of course, that indicate that co-optation of some subordinates is a more effective divide-and-rule strategy than threatening some subordinates. In other words, if you're dealing with a group of subordinates and you want to do divide-and-rule, strategically, which works better? Differentiating between subordinates by being nicer to some than to others, or doing it the other way, differentiating by being meaner to some than to the rest? So just one example of one of these experiments that I know of is covered in an article entitled Co-Optation and Threats as Divide and Rule Tactics by Edward J. Lawler, published in Social Science Quarterly in June of 1983. And in this experiment, they tested on small groups of people, just three people, two subordinates and one leader or boss. The effects of threats versus co-optation by the leader. And they concluded that co-optation in the form of holding out the prospect of promotion and things like that to one of the subordinates, but not the other, was a more effective way to divide the subordinates against each other and thereby prevent serious resistance against the leader than doing a strategy based more on threats to divide. In other words, a strategy where instead of holding out bonuses and goodies to one subordinate, but not the other, you are meaner or more threatening to one subordinate than the other. Lawler writes, quote, A threat attempts to deter a revolt by communicating the prospect of future punishment, while a co-optation tactic attempts to absorb the opposition by providing a position with attendant rewards. When applied to leaders facing the prospect of a subordinate revolt, these tactics often translate into implicit or explicit promotions or demotions. Furthermore, these tactics can take one of two forms, divisive or non-divisive. A divisive tactic is directed at only some of the subordinates or dissident group, while non-divisive tactic is aimed at virtually all subordinates. The form divisive versus non-divisive is important because it bears on the dynamics underlying the success of tactics. 
a divisive tactic, whether threat or co-optation, is designed to alter the relationship of subordinates by undermining their common interests. A non-divisive tactic treats all subordinates alike, and therefore, success is not as contingent on changes in the relationship of the subordinate. End quote. So in this experiment, they were only dealing with divisive tactics, either of threat, meaning just threatening one subordinate but not the other, or of co-optation, meaning offering some sort of benefit or promotion to just one subordinate but not the other. And they found that co-optation tended to be more effective at dividing subordinates against each other and breaking their sense of solidarity against the boss. Now, this article is a dense, technically written article, but my understanding of their conclusions is basically that if a boss treats some workers unfairly in a bad way, the workers who are not being treated unfairly in a bad way by the boss are still likely to sympathize with their co-workers who are being treated unfairly in a bad way. But if a boss treats some employees unfairly in a good way relative to others, the employees who are being treated better are not going to sympathize with their co-workers who are getting the short end of the stick. And so solidarity and common cause is more likely to be prevented by divisive co-optation than by divisive threat. And I think you can see some of this dynamic going on in the next couple of historical examples that I'm going to get to in the most detail in this episode. So now I'm going to get into two examples of divide and rule being used by groups who were already in a dominant position, in part in both instances acquired through divide and conquer. But now it's being used in order for those dominant groups to keep their position against vast numerical odds. How does a small elite group keep its ability to exploit groups that vastly outnumber them, and presumably, if they really wanted to, could overthrow them? So the first case I want to get into is the case of blacks and Indians on the southern frontier in colonial North America. So I've already mentioned that European colonists in the New World would frequently use divide-and-conquer tactics to split different Native American tribes and peoples against each other. But there was another divide-and-conquer, divide-and-rule dimension taking place on the southern frontier areas of North America, and that was the white colonial authorities in those areas doing everything they possibly could to prevent natives and Africans from ever getting together and maybe making an alliance against the white colonial authorities who were in different ways exploiting both of those groups. And here, I'm going to be mostly basing my discussion on a great article that was published way back 57 years ago. It's entitled, Divide and Rule, Red, White, and Black in the Southeast, and was written by an historian named William S. Willis, and it was published in the July 1963 issue of what was then called the Journal of Negro History. Obviously, this was back when the word Negro was considered the polite term. Even the civil rights leaders were using that word back then. Sometime, I think maybe a couple decades ago, thereabouts, the journal was renamed the Journal of African American History to reflect changes in, you know, the preferred descriptive term. But anyway, in this article, Willis is looking at the region that today we would consider the southeastern U.S. Basically, in present-day terms, we're talking about Georgia and South Carolina westward to Louisiana. And a lot of his description focuses around South Carolina, which was 
the most important white colony in the area in the 18th century. In the 18th century, this area was still very much frontier. The region was a highly contested battleground between multiple white empires, the Spanish, British, and French primarily, and then later the U.S. after independence. But for much of the 18th century, the area still had a huge Indian population. And in many areas of the Southeast, Indians still outnumbered whites at the time. At the same time, in many areas of the region, black slaves outnumbered whites too. And so, looking at the region as a whole, blacks and Indians significantly outnumbered the white population. So how was the white minority in the region able to stay on top and prevail? and get away with exploiting these two groups, each of which by themselves outnumbered the whites in the area, and both of which together overwhelmingly outnumbered them. Willis argues pretty convincingly that a big part of the story was divide and rule, that the colonial authorities in those areas were deliberately doing everything they possibly could, not only to keep blacks and Indians separate from each other and to try and prevent them from teaming up, but deliberately trying very hard and quite successfully to make blacks and Indians hate and fear each other. So that depending on the situation, the colonial authorities could always leverage one against the other. So in the colonial southeastern frontier, white settlers obviously used black slaves as laborers, but their relationship with the Indians was a little more complicated and typically revolved around trade. But at the end of the day, the white colonists in the southeast feared both groups. They feared slave uprisings and they feared Indian attacks, both of which happened plenty of times throughout the 18th century. So naturally, if they feared attacks from either of these groups, they'd be positively terrified at the possibility of blacks and Indians ever making common cause against them. The colonial authorities in the Southeast used the slave codes to try to control the danger from the slaves, and they used their trade regulations with the Indians to try to control the danger from them. Because the native tribes at this time were still large and powerful enough that colonial governments couldn't just rely on brute force all the time against them. And so to make all of this work, they made sure to do whatever they could to keep the slaves and the natives mutually hostile to each other. They also simultaneously, I should point out, continued to use divide and rule to leverage different native groups against each other. So basically, their divide and rule strategy was playing at multiple levels at the same time. The most powerful colonial government in the region at the time was South Carolina, and in the 18th century, it had to rely on alliances with Indians in order to, one, help police the slave population, and two, have Indian assistance against rival European empires, i.e. the French and Spanish, and of course any Indians that might happen to be allied with those rival Europeans. The evidence for a divide-and-rule strategy isn't just circumstantial. Willis quotes multiple colonial officials saying explicitly that that's what they were trying to do. In 1725, a South Carolina minister named Richard Ludlam wrote that the colony would, quote, "...make Indians and Negroes a check upon each other, least by their vastly superior numbers we should be crushed by one or the other." End quote. In 1758, outgoing South Carolina Governor James Glenn wrote to the man who was coming in to take his place, quote, It has been always the policy of this government to create an aversion in them, i.e. Indians, to Negroes, end quote. 
1765, a British official named John Stewart, as far as I know, no relation to the former Daily Show host, who was in charge of handling Indian affairs in the region, wrote, quote, Any intercourse between Indians and Negroes, in my opinion, ought to be prevented as much as possible. End quote. And by the way, in case you're not familiar with 18th century English, I'll point out that he's not primarily talking about sex when he says intercourse here, though he certainly would have been against blacks and Indians doing that with each other too. But in the 18th century, the term intercourse was typically used to mean contact and interaction and trade. In 1767, the same guy, John Stewart, wrote, quote, to prevent the Indian country from becoming an asylum for Negroes is a matter of the utmost consequence to the prosperity of the provinces. End quote. In 1768, in regard to an incident in which some Creek Indians killed and scalped a group of fugitive slaves who were living near a Creek community, Stuart wrote, quote, This cannot fail of having a very good effect by breaking that intercourse between Negroes and savages which might have been attended with very troublesome consequences, had it continued, end quote. And by it, when he says, had it continued, he means the fugitive slaves living near the creeks and interacting with them in non-hostile ways. And in 1775, the same guy wrote, quote, Nothing can be more alarming to Carolinians than the idea of an attack from Indians and Negroes, end quote. So a key strategy in doing this was to never miss an opportunity to make one group look bad to members of the other group, either through words or through action and circumstance. For example, on at least one documented occasion, there was an epidemic among a group of Indians that the whites blamed specifically on a group of newly imported slaves. And if we have one documented case of this being done, it's at least possible, if not likely, that this was done on other occasions when there were outbreaks among the Indians as well. Indians were very frequently employed as slave catchers, and the whites would pay them very, very well by the standards of the time and place for doing this service, much better than the Indians would normally get paid for trading things like deerskins. Willis writes, quote, Whites employed Indians as slave catchers, and Indians were eager for these jobs. Moreover, Negroes knew that Indians, being expert woodsmen, were better slave catchers than white soldiers and patrols. Negroes also realized that death sometimes awaited the unsuccessful runaway instead of a return to slavery. The Charlestown government executed leaders of fugitive slave parties and those slaves who ran away repeatedly. This government also instructed slave catchers to kill fugitive Negroes when they could not capture them. Therefore, dead fugitives were paid for as well as live ones. This encouraged Indians to be more bloodthirsty than white slave catchers. The labor of these fugitives was not going to benefit them. Besides, scalping was more profitable to them than to whites. Indians could make one scalp look like two or more scalps. To prevent this cheating, the Charlestown government tried to buy only scalps with two ears. End quote. So that gives you a sense of just how brutal all of this was. With the slaves, the colonists didn't just worry about violent uprisings, but also about much more common and mundane things like slaves running away. The most troublesome runaways were those who became maroons. 
These were the ones who managed to get away to what James C. Scott would call state-resistant terrain, occasionally in the Appalachian Mountains, but more frequently in the swamps of the Deep South. White colonists considered these communities to be major threats, not just because these former slaves might get away permanently and make a little life for themselves out there in the wilderness, but they also had good reason to worry that those maroon communities might actively try to recruit more members from slaves who were still on plantations, and that slaves on plantations would hear rumors and information about these maroon communities and it would lure them away. So the white colonists considered these communities to be major threats, and they believed that the best way to try to destroy them was to get Indian help, since the Indians would be better able in terms of their skill set to penetrate into these very difficult environments and take care of the situation. Willis cites a specific example of this happening, where there was a maroon community of escaped slaves that had been established on Tybee Island. And the South Carolina government arranged to have a group of Creek Indians go in and take care of it. And a colonel named Stephen Bull said approvingly of this arrangement that it would, quote, establish a hatred or aversion between Indians and Negroes, end quote. Some Indians in the Southeast became slave traders. And some of these would go capture and steal slaves away from whites in one area and then transport them to another area and sell them to different white masters. In fact, during the Revolutionary War, the British Army in the South encouraged this practice on the part of the Indians, who generally sided with the British in the conflict, so long as they were stealing slaves away from rebels. Obviously, in these sorts of conflicts, the violence would go both ways, because, of course, the escaped slaves would be doing whatever they could to protect their lives and freedom. It's also likely, though it can't be documented too much for certain, that white slave owners would make sure to tell their slaves about any nasty things that Indians did to slaves that they were either stealing or that they were going after who had escaped. And we have to presume that it's likely not only that this sort of storytelling would take place, but there probably would be a bit of exaggeration and fabrication on top of it to make things even worse than they already were, which was pretty bad. White authorities in the Southeast also liked to use Indians to put down actual full-on slave insurrections. And they paid Indians very generously for doing this service. Various groups of Indians were involved with suppressing the major Stono Rebellion of 1739, the biggest slave rebellion of the time period, as well as other rebellions in 1744 and 1765. On the flip side, though, it certainly was not Plan A. During extreme emergencies, like, for example, the Yamasi Indian conflict, White South Carolinians actually would on occasion arm slaves as soldiers and offer their freedom if they served well. So as a result of all this, slaves and Indians would again find themselves in situations in which they'd both be trying to kill each other. And it's pretty much inevitable that when two groups of people find themselves in that situation for whatever different circumstances or reasons, if they find themselves in that situation often enough, and there's a lot of brutality to it as well, that it's pretty much inevitable, like water flowing downhill, that mutual hatred is just going to grow over time. Colonial laws generally tried to minimize contact between Indians and blacks in general. There were laws on the books that actually forbade any slave from going into Indian territory for any reason. Even if it was something like his master was going in to do business with the Indians and the slave was just coming along to help, that wasn't allowed. 
because they didn't want the slaves to get any ideas about escaping into Indian territory. Willis shows that the Cherokee may have been the most racist Indian tribe of all at the time against blacks. He even quotes a Cherokee leader from the 18th century saying negative things about Spaniards that they basically like weren't real white people. And in part for this reason, colonial authorities generally treated the Cherokee better than the other tribes in the region in the 18th century. And part of it was because they were found to be so useful as auxiliaries to help police the slaves. Among other things, because of where the Cherokee were located physically at the time, they made it a lot harder for maroon communities to be formed in the inland mountainous areas. Now, there is an interesting case in the region of divide and rule not being used, at least in one area, by the people in charge of that area, that Willis doesn't really get into much in this article. This article is mostly looking at South Carolina and Georgia, and to a lesser extent, Louisiana. And that exception, at least for a while, can be found in Spanish Florida, where the Spanish colonial government never really made it a priority to keep blacks and Indians separated from each other and hostile to each other. And the result, as I've talked about in old episodes of this podcast, was that the Florida Indians, especially those that eventually became known as the Seminoles, often had a pretty positive relationship with communities of Maroons in Florida. Now, these Maroons were generally slaves that escaped from the English and later American territories of Georgia and South Carolina. And once they made it to Florida, the Spanish authorities generally would just leave them alone to have their own Maroon communities as long as they weren't bothering anybody. And these Maroon communities in Florida often got along well with the Indians in the area, too. And in some instances, blacks basically became Seminoles. This is a group of people referred to as black Seminoles. And there's at least one entire book that I know of that's focused just on this topic. Very interesting stuff. Of course, from at least as early as Thomas Jefferson's presidency, many American leaders, particularly Southerners, wanted Team America to go and grab Florida and take it over from the Spanish. And a huge part of why that was so important to them was that they just couldn't stand the fact that there was this haven for both independent Indians and for runaway slaves, right adjacent to American territory. So eventually, James Monroe would send Andrew Jackson to take it over. And of course, by the time you move ahead in time, this article, again, is mostly talking about the 18th century. But by the time you get in, you know, a few decades into the 19th century, there was enough white population in the Southeast that the strategy of divide and rule between blacks and Indians was no longer necessary to keep the white population on top. And so eventually you just get the policy of outright Indian removal, because demographics had finally tipped the power balance enough that the white population of the Southeast, A, could keep their slaves under control without any Indian help, and B, could also decisively overpower the Indians. So divide and rule in regard to playing blacks and Indians off against each other was a temporary strategy for about a century in this region, during a time where the white population wasn't large enough to just run things through brute force. But this story definitely shows how one group can successfully play off two other groups, each of which by itself outnumbers the first group for quite some time, in order to maintain an advantage over both of the two larger groups. What I really like about this article is that Willis doesn't just look at circumstantial evidence that divide and rule seems to have been taking place. He actually shows, using the statements of many colonial authorities and leaders, that the strategy was deliberate and self-conscious on their part. 
that the mutual hatred between blacks and Indians on the southeastern frontier in the 18th century was not an accident. It wasn't a natural foregone conclusion that just spontaneously occurred. And in fact, the counterexample of Spanish Florida shows that it didn't have to be the case. And it wasn't the result of some unintended consequences of something else that just happened to benefit the white colonial population of the region. It was something that they deliberately took every opportunity to stoke. So now let's talk about a different group of Indians. Not American Indians, but Indian Indians. And how the British used these same principles to rule them. So here we're talking about the British Empire in India. While virtually all empires throughout history have had divide and conquer and divide and rule in their toolboxes, and have used them both a great deal, in the modern world, perhaps no one did it more often or more effectively than the British. They ruled India for nearly two centuries. First for about a hundred years via the British East India Company, until the 1857 Indian Mutiny where large segments, though not all, of the British East India Company's army rebelled against British authority. And then following the mutiny, the British government took it over directly and would hold on to control of India until a few years after World War II. So the company ruled the region for about a century, and then the British state ruled it directly for about 90 years. This is the period referred to as the Raj. Now, there are plenty of books and articles out there about the British Empire doing these things. We already mentioned them, along with the French, and then later the Americans doing this on the southeastern part of North America in the 18th century. And the British also used these tactics in carving up the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. And at least part of the reason for the dysfunction of those regions to this day, it's not the only reason to be sure, but it's a big one, is that the British as well as the other European imperial powers involved in places like Africa and the Middle East, preferred, if possible, to draw up the borders of their different colonies and protectorates and mandates in ways that would combine together several, preferably already a bit hostile, ethnic, religious, and or tribal groups into one thing, so that the British or the French or whoever it might be would then be able to leverage these animosities to make themselves and then keep themselves the overlords of the place. And then later, when these became at least their own nominally independent sovereign states following decolonization after World War II, most of them were dysfunctional at best, and at worst, they might be plagued by chronic civil war with the occasional attempted genocide. Now again, I'm not saying this is all just the legacy of colonial divide and rule, but I think you'd be crazy to say that that's not one of the major contributing factors to just how screwed up a lot of these places have been and continue to be. And obviously, in the case of the Middle East, Team America deserves a lot of the blame for making it all even worse over the past 40 years or so. But where the British did divide and rule on the biggest scale and the most effectively for the longest time was in India, the so-called jewel in the crown of the British Empire. And it's also one of the places where the legacy of divide and rule led to some of the worst violence and continuing problems and tensions to this day, including making the region one of the more likely parts of the world for nuclear war to actually happen. And of course, here I'm talking primarily about the way 
that the legacy of divide and rule was the biggest driving factor behind partition being such a violent mess. Partition, of course, meaning the partitioning off of Pakistan from India when the British were leaving. This was not like the Czech Republic and Slovakia splitting off from each other, a relatively orderly sort of an affair. This was a chaotic and violent mess. There was a lot of immediate violence occurring during the partition process that affected many people at the time. This is a story, by the way, that most Westerners know little or nothing about. And then this has led to many legacies to this day, including the military tensions between India and Pakistan, which both, of course, these days have nukes. In the 19th century, India's population was already well over 200 million people. And it's a much bigger piece of land than the UK, too. And yet, the British were able to rule the place for quite some time, with a surprisingly light footprint of Brits on the ground, of actual white British people, running this subcontinent. I don't think the British ever had more than maybe 60,000 or so white British soldiers in the country. And at various points, they had much less than that. While the number of Indian soldiers in the British Indian Army was many times that. And I don't think the number of white British Indian civil service administrators and bureaucrats was ever much more than maybe a thousand. And yet, with this surprisingly light footprint, they managed to hold control over India for nearly 200 years. Now, again, as I've said before, I think, in regard to other historical instances in this episode, I'm not arguing at all that divide and conquer and divide and rule was the only tool in the toolbox here, but it definitely was a very important and a very well-used one. It certainly was part of the strategy for the East India Company taking the place over in the first place. So there are many, many ways that you can find the British, both under the East India Company and during the Raj, deliberately and consciously using divide and rule in India throughout their time controlling it. But here, I'm just going to talk about one particular aspect. The use of divide and rule in the Indian Army following the mutiny of 1857. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into the details of the mutiny here, other than to say it was a brutal, nasty affair, with lots of atrocities committed on both sides. It was very messy, but the British ultimately prevailed. And part of it was that only certain parts of their Indian army rebelled, and other parts stayed loyal to the British. Had the entire Indian army, or the vast majority of it, unified together against the British, the British wouldn't have had a chance. But enough parts of the Indian army remained loyal during the mutiny that the British were ultimately able to put it down. But I'm mostly going to talk about what happens in the decades following as the British Indian army is reformed and restructured a bit, and certain tendencies that maybe had already been in place before get amped up more dramatically. And my main source for this discussion is going to be an excellent article entitled Divide and Rule? Question mark? Race, Military Recruitment, and Society in Late 19th Century Colonial India, which was written by Amar Faruqi and was published in the March-April 2015 issue of the journal Social Scientist. So in this article, Faruqi digs into a concept in the British Indian Army having to do with different quote-unquote races in India, 
These races were defined as different groups of people in India, which is a very diverse country. You know, Americans and white people in general probably think, oh, there's a group called Indians, right? But of course, like any country that large, there's all kinds of different ethnic and language and religious and cultural distinct groups. So anyway, the British authorities took advantage of these differences and played them up and leveraged them strategically in order to make sure they maintain control over their Indian army and that the army would be much less likely to have a widespread mutiny like happened in 1857. So yet again, they are going to encourage and leverage these ethnic divides for their own benefit. And at the heart of a lot of this is going to be a division of the various Indian quote-unquote races into two categories, the so-called martial races and the so-called non-martial races a distinction that was portrayed as genetic rather than cultural. And in the process, the British commanders who are running the Indian army are going to try and make the group identities of these different races the only thing that matters. And they're going to do everything they can to reify these ideas and get them internalized into the soldiers themselves as much as possible. Faruqi writes, quote, the British army of the late 19th century did not know of its soldiers as individuals, but only as members of specific communities. Recruitment policy was premised on the denial both of individuality and commonality. In other words, Indians did not exist as individuals, and further, that as Indians, or for that matter as humans, they had little in common with each other. They merely shared the inherent characteristics of their respective communities. The communities themselves were visualized as being closed, exclusive, and virtually unchanging. Such notions encouraged tendencies of separateness and fostered hostile attitudes. End quote. And again, the British authorities deliberately cultivated and encouraged this mindset among the Indian soldiers themselves in order to keep the Indian army under control and to keep these soldiers from ever uniting against their British overlords. And they really went pretty far, pretty fast with this whole idea. Faruqi writes, quote, What is astonishing is the literalness with which the maximum, by which he means divide and rule, was interpreted. Promoting hatred among communities in the army became state policy. This model could then be replicated for Indian society as a whole. End quote. So I'll just point out here that even though this article is just talking about the army, Faruqi is saying, and he's quite right about this, that this was applied to India in general. Now, it was perhaps applied the most strictly and explicitly within the British Indian army, but this playing up of racial difference and animosities was encouraged throughout Indian society during British rule. So the British in India had done a lot of dividing and conquering when taking the place over. And the East India Company had used divide-and-rule strategies within the Indian army that they built. But after the mutiny, the British are going to kick this strategy into much higher gear in regard to the army, going much further than they had before the mutiny. And Faruqi quotes multiple British authorities during this time period, saying that this is deliberately what they are doing. And the whole idea is that this will reduce the likelihood 
of large-scale mutinies ever happening again. And also, by emphasizing divide and rule within the British Indian Army. It means that if there is any sort of a mutiny, it'll probably be only within one so-called race. And you can then use the elements of the army that are from different races to put down the rebellious regiment or whatever it is within the army. So, for example, Faruqi cites an aristocratic politician named Charles Wood, who was British Secretary of State for India in the aftermath of the mutiny, writing in 1862, quote, I wish to have a different and rival spirit in different regiments, so that Sikh may fire into Hindu, Gurkha into either, without any scruple in case of need. End quote. In deciding where to recruit soldiers from, and how to organize them into units once they were recruited, divide and rule by race was the Brits' number one priority. British recruiters collected super detailed info about potential recruits as far as their ethnicity, their religion, and their caste in order to engineer the British army to work as they wanted it to. As Faruqi writes, even before the mutiny and subsequent reorganization, quote, colonial officials had become accustomed to thinking of soldiers essentially in terms of the communities to which they belonged rather than as individuals. From here, it was but a short step to ascribing immutable characteristics to communities and inventing such characteristics. End quote. Hey, who does that sound like? The most important thing about you is your group identity, primarily based on race and ethnicity. And that's really all that matters about you. We can tell everything important we need to know about you by what category you belong to in terms of race and ethnicity. Who does that sound like? To my ears, it sounds like it could be either the far-out SJW left or the racialist elements of the alt-right. Anyway, as Faruqi writes, By the 1880s or thereabouts, the British were no longer feeling as anxious and vulnerable regarding revolt from within India as they had in the years right after the mutiny. But instead, they were getting increasingly paranoid about Russia coming down into the region from the north. This was a sort of cold, clandestine, low-level war, often referred to as the Great Game. And a key battleground here became Afghanistan. And the Anglo-Afghan wars Britain fought in the late 19th century were about trying to get control of Afghanistan in order to make it a secure buffer to keep the Russians from moving on northern India. By the way, the British were pretty unsuccessful in trying to take over Afghanistan, to put it mildly. Who could have predicted? But one effect of the paranoia about Russia and the Afghan wars was another round of reform of the Indian army starting in the 1880s. And part of this was to solidify the race-based divide-and-rule strategy even more. This is when the British began even more rigidly sorting the many diverse ethnic groups in India into two categories, the martial races and the non-martial races. Now, the overwhelming majority of the population of India was classed as non-martial. Less than 10% of the people in India were considered by the British to be one of the martial races. The martial races tended to mostly be from the more northwestern regions of India. Faruqi writes of this, quote, The term race 
was used in the sense of a well-defined group that had several common physical features, which in turn gave to them certain inherent naturally acquired behavioral traits. All members of the community, it was imagined, shared these traits. Courage was not, for example, an aspect of an individual's personality, but a racial quality. If one belonged to a community that was racially brave, only then could one be courageous. Otherwise, you would be biologically timid, irrespective of your personal abilities. According to this perverse doctrine, specific context, historical conditions, social milieu, and personal temperament did not determine individual behavior. Moreover, quote-unquote racial behavior corresponded to physical features, such as complexion of the skin, shape of the head, shape of the nose, height, structure of the limbs, contours of the eyes, color of the hair, thickness or thinness of the lips, etc. Broadly speaking, dark-complexioned, short-statured, relatively flat-nosed, and thick-lipped people were classified as inferior racial types. End quote. Now, as you might expect, by contrast, the so-called martial races were those who were taller, fairer in skin tone, and had thinner lips and so forth. Many British sources actually referred to these martial races also as Indo-Aryans, and they were supposed to inherently possess all sorts of superior personal qualities, including things like courage and discipline. A lot of this sounds very similar to overall racialist, social Darwinist ideology going on both in many parts of Europe at the time and also in the United States, and a lot of this gets wrapped up in the eugenics movement as well. And a lot of it ain't a whole lot different from, like, phrenology. You know, with phrenology, you can tell whether an individual is honest or courageous or hardworking or dysfunctional or whatever by the shape of their skull. Or getting into a slightly more sophisticated, if still pseudoscientific, milieu that based on one's racial characteristics of height and skin tone and shape of your nose and whatever, you can tell all sorts of personality and psychological characteristics about an individual based on those things. Now, this whole idea of Indo-Aryans was a racial theory of the time, much of it considered pretty questionable in our own time, that said that some of the more fair-skinned Indian ethnic groups from the Northwest were basically slightly racially degenerated Europeans. And so they were almost sort of like junior white people, possessing a lot of positive qualities, but still not quite full white people, and so they still needed some real white people to tell them what to do. Because, according to British authorities, even these supposedly best Indians needed them, their British overlords, in order to be able to live up to their potential. As Faruqi writes, according to the British, quote, Under no circumstances could anyone from the martial races of India lead. They had to be led, end quote. So yeah, you're from a pretty good race with some good qualities. The only quality you lack is the ability to lead yourself, which conveniently, conveniently, I, the Anglo-Saxon, am able to provide for you. Faruqi then quotes British General Frederick Roberts, who's probably the most prominent British commander of this era of the empire, writing, quote, History and experience teach us that Eastern races, fortunately for us, however brave and accustomed to war, 
do not possess the qualities that go to make leaders of men. End quote. Now, armed with this racial pseudoscience, the British commanders reconfigured the Indian army to further promote this idea of martial races being superior to non-martial races and all of that, all while making sure to follow a divide-and-rule strategy even among the different categories of martial races. So army recruits would be organized into racially homogenous regiments. And they were strongly encouraged to only stay with their own, and to keep all of their particular culture, customs, and religious practices, and to avoid mingling with people from other groups, to minimize contact with and being influenced by people from another group, and maybe having some cultural interaction with them, and maybe, worst of all, realizing that these different races might actually have some common grievances and some common enemies. And just as one example of this, an early 20th century British book on Sikhs talks about how the British authorities tried to only recruit Sikhs who were very serious about their Sikhism. And in particular, they only wanted Sikhs who had already undergone Pahul, which I may or may not be pronouncing that right. My apologies if you're a Sikh, and I'm butchering it. But basically, my understanding is this ritual of Pahul is kind of analogous to baptism in the Sikh religion. And the British only wanted those kind of Sikhs because they felt they'd be less likely to get somehow contaminated by Hinduism. So Faruqi quotes this British book from the early 20th century talking about this as follows, quote, Sikh soldiers are required to adhere rigidly to Sikh customs and ceremonial, and every effort has been made to preserve them from the contagion of Hinduism. Sikhs in the Indian army have been studiously nationalized or encouraged to regard themselves as a totally distinct and separate nation. The reason of this policy is not far to seek. With his relapse into Hinduism and readoption of its superstitions and vicious social customs, it is notorious that the Sikh loses much of his martial instincts and greatly deteriorates as a fighting machine. End quote. And Faruqi concludes of this, quote, There could be no clearer enunciation of a policy based upon promoting divisiveness. They cynically emphasized difference and concocted antagonisms. Is it then surprising that, given the esteem in which the British Indian Army was held, sections of Indian society should have begun to think in similar terms? End quote. So not only did the soldiers in the army internalize a lot of this, but it fanned out into the wider society as well. And of course, the legacy of all this includes the massive violence of partition when the British left, and many of the tensions in that region of the world to this day, which of course now have a nuclear dimension. And it's not to say that there weren't already existing divisions and rivalries and so on amongst the different groups of people in the place we think of as India before the British ever showed up. But when you have an outside, numerically very small group come in and take over, and a big part of their deliberate strategy for doing so is divide and rule, and they're amping it up all the time, I think you can see how quickly this goes off the rails beyond any normal sort of tendency for different groups of people in the same region to have maybe some rivalries and disputes. Now, I think this article is particularly important because it points out 
that the divide and rule strategy focused on kind of intermediate categories of people. And what I mean by that here is that Indians in the British Imperial Army weren't seen in terms of individual human beings, nor were they seen in terms of one big group called Indians, broadly defined, that might have united in a common cause against the British. Instead, they were funneled into and encouraged to think of themselves as just being in the intermediate category of quote-unquote race, which was overwhelmingly defined in essentialist terms. And thereby, once they had fully internalized this view of themselves and others, they would be prevented from either A, unifying against the British, you know, and realizing that even though maybe some of them were getting a little better treated by the British than others, in the grand scheme of things, they were all to some degree getting screwed by the British. Or B, seeing themselves as being unique, sentient individual human beings and relating to each other in that way. And again, still possibly coming to the conclusion that they had a common cause against their mutual overlords. I mean, if you're made to believe that the different ethnic, cultural, and religious groups in India are fundamentally racially different, that it's not just a matter of different cultures in different places, but that these differences are permanent, unchanging, in today's terms we would say just part of your DNA, it's in your bones, well then there's no possibility of the different groups ever coming to some sort of reconciliation or understanding not saying that they would all have to merge together into one, but you could still have these distinct groups with their own distinct customs and language and so forth, but still have some kind of a reasonable respect and understanding. But with enough divide and rule, there's no possibility of them ever looking up in unison to their British overlords, like the lion and the boar looking up to the vultures, and thinking thoughts like, hey, those British guys are way more different from any of our different groups than we are from each other. And while maybe the Brits are exploiting some of us worse than others, to some extent they are exploiting over all of us. So why don't we set aside some of our differences and get rid of them? Kick them out of here, and then we can work out some sort of an understanding of coexistence among ourselves. Instead, divide and rule leads the different factions to think about each other in very dehumanizing, collectivist, broad-brush terms, and to see their relationship with different groups as a zero-sum game, often with tragic results. And even if and when the party that was doing the divide and rule just stops doing it, or up and leaves like the British did with India after World War II, it's not like you can just flip a switch magically and wipe away all the bad blood and grudges that the different factions have built up against each other. It's not like all the different groups immediately will come to their senses once there's no longer an elite stirring it up. After a while, these sorts of rivalries and hatreds take on a life of their own and become some sort of self-licking ice cream cone or perpetual motion machine that is very difficult to short-circuit and shut down. By the way, something I just want to stress, both of the examples that I've gotten into in the most detail here, the southeastern frontier of North America and the British Raj in India, involve divide and rule being carried out primarily by white English speakers. But I don't want anyone getting the impression that I think that Anglo-Saxons have some sort of monopoly on all this, or that it's a uniquely British or even uniquely white thing to do. 
you can find every empire that's ever existed doing this stuff to some extent. Whether that empire is run by white people, black people, or any other shade in between. In fact, some of the empires that exercised control over India before the British showed up had used the strategy as well. It's not like the British had to create all of the categories and animosities from scratch. They just had to play them up and leverage them. The reason I chose these two examples in particular to go in the most depth here is it just happens that the British and American empires are the two empires in history with which I have the most detailed knowledge, so that's where I got my most in-depth examples for this episode. Also, I want to stress that I'm not saying that in all these cases the divisions were artificially created and might not have already existed, at least to some extent, before the outsider imperialist came in. And I'm not saying that there aren't aspects of human nature that are prone to us and then thinking that can happen without a ruler making the divisions. We are tribal primates after all. But I'm saying that there are also elements of human nature that can potentially counterbalance this tendency to some degree in the right circumstances. And I'm saying that when an elite group deliberately and consciously strategizes either to create or to amp up antagonisms between different subordinate groups in order to leverage those antagonisms for the elite's own benefit, that A, they're making everything much, much worse, and in ways that can have all sorts of bad long-term consequences, and B, that it's just a bad, evil thing to do even if it doesn't always lead to a complete bloodbath. So I'm still against it, and that's why I think it's important to try to explain to people how this game works. So that hopefully, as time goes on, the percentage of people who are mindless pawns in the game will decline. And the percentage who can spot, divide, and rule for what it is, the percentage who glance up and see the vultures and understand what that means that when this game is being played by politicians and the media, and even the corporate elite, they'll see it for what it is and try to resist being drawn into this sort of thing on one side or the other. The more people understand how a particular con works, the fewer people will fall for it. Maybe that's wishful thinking on my part, but I think it's at least worth a shot, and I think it's the right thing to at least try to bring about. So tying all of this into current events particularly in regard to the media and political coverage and narratives of all the things related to the fallout from the killing of George Floyd. I don't want to get into all of the current events in huge detail. I'm sure you're all following it in different ways. But I think the relevance of what I've covered in this episode to these events is mostly pretty obvious. The media and the politicians, whatever side they happen to be on, overwhelmingly are doing what they can to put all of this into a Manichaean, binary, us-versus-them narrative that will end up greatly amping up the hatred and tensions between different factions of the non-elite. Meanwhile, the political class, both parties, as well as the corporate media, the military-industrial complex, Wall Street, and all the rest of the usual suspects will keep robbing all of us regular folks blind while all of us regular folks in the cheap seats are distracted pointing fingers and calling names at each other. 
I mean, just look into all the corporate bailouts and welfare in the so-called CARES Act from a few months ago, if you've not already done so. Notice how nobody in mainstream politics and the mainstream media is currently talking about that enormous fucking robbery. They're all distracted by the factional fighting amongst the different people in the cheap seats. So I guess if the crime is big enough, you can hide it in plain sight while the proles are busy hating each other over petty differences. It seems to me it was at least possible, theoretically, for politicians and the media to cover the George Floyd story and all that goes along with it in a way that could have brought people together across lines of things like race and ideology and party and so on, in some constructive way to make at least some positive changes in regard to some of these issues. Instead, whether they're covering the story from this side or that side of the divide, they're putting everything into a narrative that at least seems to have been designed to serve the purpose of divide and rule from their perspective. And the lower-level people on both sides of these issues are just, in my view, useful idiots. They're pawns in someone else's game. They're dancing to someone else's tune, acting to someone else's script, and they're completely oblivious to it. Now, I can't control other people, but all I can say is that for myself, I'm trying as hard as I can to keep myself from getting sucked into any sort of binary us-versus-them thinking of the sort that just plays right into the divide-and-rule strategy of the elites. And of course, I'm trying to do my humble little part here to try to get as many people as possible to spot this stuff for what it is, and to avoid being pulled into it themselves as well. The 18th century English poet William Somerville adapted some of Aesop's fables, and he did an update on the lion and boar story that I started off with, in which it's a dog and a bear who fight in the blood sport known as bear baiting, which is where a bear would be forced to fight with another animal or group of animals, most frequently dogs, for amusement and gambling purposes, kind of like cockfighting. And this was pretty common a few centuries ago. So in Somerville's telling, the dog, who is named Towser, and the bear, who is named Urson, fight viciously in a back-and-forth way, first one getting the upper hand and then the other, until eventually they have an epiphany and realize no matter how their battle turns out, the only real beneficiaries were their masters and the spectators. Now, this poem is in 300-year-old English, so it's a little bit different sounding to our ears today. But I think it's easier to understand when you hear it aloud than if you were to silently read it. And I think in some ways, it makes the divide and rule point even more relevant to our discussion here than does Aesop's original version. So I'm going to close this episode with this poem. The Dog and the Bear by William Somerville Towser of Wright Hockleyan sire, a dog of metal and of fire, with Urson grim and errant bear, mounted a long and dubious war. Oft Urson on his back was tossed, and Towser many a collop lost. Capricious fortune would declare, now for the dog, then for the bear. Thus having tried their courage fairly, brave Urson first desired a parley.
stout combatant, quoth he, whose might I've felt in many a bloody fight. Tell me the cause of all this pother, and why we worry one another. That's a moot point, the cur replied. Our masters only can decide. While thou and I our heart's blood spill, they prudently their pockets fill. Halloo us on with all their might to turn a penny by the fight. If that's the case, returned the bear, tis time at last to end the war. Thou keep thy teeth and I my claws to combat in a nobler cause. Sleep in a whole skin, I advise, and let them bleed who gain the prize. Moral? Parties enraged on one another fall. The butcher and the bear ward pocket all. enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat 
You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.